I, uh, I wanted to start by echoing what Stuart just said to us just before we sang those two songs. You are loved by the God of the universe. You are loved by the God of all creation. And I say that because Emily was reminding me, Emily, my wife, um, as, we were, uh, as we arrived here and we could hear these guys singing, Here is Love. It was um, uh, two years ago today that um, we were driving to the hospital um, to, for Seth to be born, and we were singing Here is Love in the car. Um, so well done, Emily, for reminding me of that. Um, and then, as you can work out, it's Seth's birthday tomorrow. But as we were, as Stuart was saying that, and I was thinking about those words, it was just amazing to me And I wanted to start with that because I'm also going to end my message with that as well. You are loved. You are loved by God so deeply. So, so deeply. And the things we're going to chat about this morning, much of them are are quite hard. I want to start with that and I want to end with that. You are loved by God. And if you take anything away from this morning, take that truth home with you. You are loved by God. We are continuing in our series of the Gospel of John. John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, he wrote an account of Jesus' life, uh, his work, his ministry, and then his death and his resurrection. And we began last week with Rick in chapter 17, Rick from um, Wall's End, the River Church in Wall's End, and he introduced to us John chapter 17, which is a section that covers a prayer Jesus prayed just before he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified. It's almost in some ways one of the, his last pieces of dialogue, a monologue, I suppose, before he's taken from the disciples. Now, last week, Rick introduced to us how the prayer is it's concentric in nature. Now, I like the idea uh, of the image that Rick used of dropping a pebble into some water and the ripples it creates work outwards from the center. So the prayer begins, like we looked at last week, with Jesus praying for himself and then for his disciples and then for those who would believe the disciples' message, the church. So if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you're in this prayer. You are in this prayer. Jesus prayed for you, and the New Testament actually goes on to say that he continues to pray for you. Jesus prayed for you. So at the outset, I want you to note that down. Jesus deeply, deeply, deeply cares for your well-being, and he cares for the well-being of your faith and your relationship with God. He cares with an ultimate passion. And Rick took us through verses 1 to 5 last week, and today we're going to look at verses 6 to 19, where Jesus prays, therefore, for the, for the disciples that are, in some ways, they're in front of him. I think they're probably actually listening to this prayer being prayed. As they prepare to take on the baton, as it were, as they prepare to take on the gospel. And for those who might not know, I don't want to assume that, the gospel is the good news. It's the great news that Jesus came to die for all of our sin and our brokenness, took the punishment for our sin, and then rose again so that we who wouldn't wouldn't need to fear death anymore, but that we who believe in him and follow him would receive new life, life forever, eternal life, and a personal, intimate relationship with God, the relationship that we were all designed to have and enjoy, but we can't get through our own efforts or our own good deeds. 
That's the gospel message. That's why Christianity is different from any other faith position because all the others just give advice, really. They just give advice. But Christianity gives you a message, gives you a person. Advice is given to help, some, help with things that may or may not happen, but a message is given to tell you something that has already happened. Namely, that Jesus has died for your sin and your brokenness, and he offers you real, genuine, and full life today through trusting in what he's done on the cross and rising from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the message that Jesus is going to be passing on to his 11 disciples before they go out and spread it. They don't know that. They don't fully understand that. They don't fully understand the responsibility that is on them, and they won't until Jesus has died and risen from the dead, but that's what they're about to do. So let's read together John chapter 17, and it uh, will be up on the screen for us. John chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. Jesus praying, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the joy, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus has moved from praying for himself as he is completing the work of the Father, and he moves to pray for his disciples, who you are, I suppose you could say, they're the chief products of his work. And don't forget, these are the ones who are about to forsake him in probably minutes' time after he's prayed this prayer. They're about to forsake him, they're about to abandon him, and in Peter's case, they're about to deny they even know him. And yet Jesus prays for them. And so one thing, again, I would say at the outset is this. When it comes to God, failure does not have to be final. Failure does not have to be final. God, in His love and grace, does accept us when we return to Him. Just like Jesus gathers His disciples together once again after the resurrection, which we read about at the end of John, He does not forsake them like they did. 
In fact, he doesn't just forgive them. He recommissions them, and he says, you go be my representatives to the world. Tell the world who I am and what I've accomplished for them if they believe in me. So know that, please, here today, this morning. If you've let God down this morning, this week, this month, whatever, you've wandered away in some way, he loves you, and he desires that you return to him. And if you do, he will embrace you. He is the father on the hill waiting for the son and daughter to return. Know that, please, this morning. Jesus moves from praying for himself in regard to what he's about to do at the cross to these 11 men right in front of him, the ones who are going to go out to spread the message and become his church when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. And what this teaches us at the outset is this. Jesus cares about you. He cares about how you're doing. He's interested in you and your walk with God. He understands the challenges you face every day. He understands the battles and the temptations you're having right now in your work life or in your family life or in your home life or in your church relationships. He understands the battles and the challenges you face. He has the same concern for us today as he did 2,000 years ago for those 11 men. And so Jesus, God the Son, he teaches us to turn to the only one who can give us all we need, which is the Father. And as Jesus prays, there are four things I want us to note down. Four things I want this, that I think are worth highlighting for those of us who are seeking to follow God. And my question for each of us today is this. Have I or have we taken these, a hold of these four things that I'm about to say? And do my thoughts and do my feelings and do my behaviors indicate that I take these four things seriously in my life? If Jesus looked at my life, which by the way, he does, if Jesus looked at my life, would he say that, the, that he can see these four things bearing fruit in my life today? Have these four things been obscured in my life? Have I forgotten them? Have I ignored them? Have I neglected them? So, Joel, what are the four things? The four things are that Jesus' followers are given a new identity, that Jesus' followers are given a new unity, Jesus' followers are given a new priority, and Jesus' followers are given a new joy. They all end with why. <laughs> that will not help you to remember them. Because <laughs> lots of words end in why. But there you go. My full point. Jesus' followers are given these four things. And then I put then a, a second sentence there. Jesus prays that we will hold on to these four things, for our enemy will attack all of them. We have an enemy, we've just read about, and he will attack all four of these things. Your identity, your understanding of your identity, the unity of the church, your priorities, and he will take your joy, or try to take your joy. Four things. Let's begin then with identity. Before going on to describe the battles that these guys are going to face, Jesus prays that they would know and remember who they are. And he begins in verse 6 by speaking about what he came to do. So let me read verse 6 again for us. And I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Verse 6 says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now, NIV translations, they've paraphrased this slightly to get to the main point. 
But if you have a translation like the English Standard Version, the ESV, it reads like this. I have manifested your name to the people. I've revealed you, as it says in the NIV, I have manifested your name. Kind of saying the same things, but what, what is Jesus getting at? Jesus came to manifest, to show, to make known God's name. And Jesus mentions God's name later on in the passage when he says in verse 11, protect them, Father, by the power of your name. So what does Jesus mean by this idea of revealing God's name? In the Bible, the name of someone represents, as what scholars put, the totality of their entire person. The totality, the inner character of their entire person. For God, his name basically is, is, is his revealed character. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself to the people of Israel under a variety of names, each of which teaches us something, about him, something important about him. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. I'm the God of peace. I'm the God of all mercy. I'm the God of compassion. Names that are revealing aspects of God's character. And when we first encounter God's name in the book of Exodus, where God is speaking to Moses, he reveals his name to be, I am. I am that I am. Now, Jesus consistently, if you read through the Gospel of John, he uses that name to describe himself. Some of these will be familiar to us, won't they? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Ego imi is the Hebrew. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. And even if you go into the next chapter in John chapter 18, he uses that name again when they're coming to arrest him. And Jesus says to them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And if we didn't think that was a divine declaration, if you read the next verse, what happens? The soldiers fall back. Because God has spoken. I am he. But not only that, Jesus consistently, as you read the Gospel of John, he talks about his work being empowered by God's name. He calls people to believe in his name, doesn't he? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, it says in the book of Acts. That's a consistent theme through the Gospel of John. And so Jesus' chief purpose in coming and revealing himself is that he is disclosed to the world the entire personhood of God, his entire nature, or as he puts it, his name. The entirety of his character, his name. And Jesus says, these 11 followers, they've accepted these words of his. They've received them, they've accepted them, they've kept them through faith. He says that he's given them God's words and they've accepted them. They've accepted something of Jesus' identity. Have they understood it fully? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If they had, I imagine they wouldn't be running away, abandoning him in several minutes' time. Or maybe they still would have done it. We don't know. Well, they certainly haven't grasped all of it. But he says, Jesus, that they have understood enough. They understand enough about me and my identity. They spent a lot of time with him. They've heard him speak and do amazing things. And it's been revealed to them that Jesus is different, that he doesn't speak the words of God, and he does teach God's truth. They haven't got everything sewn up, but they understood enough. And because of this belief and because of this faith, Jesus declares their identity. Jesus says whose they are. What does he say? That they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. They are yours. They are God's. 
They are in God's possession. The first thing that Jesus wants them to understand, and I suppose us today, is our identity. As followers of Jesus, we need to understand we, who we are, and we need to understand whose we are. We need to understand who we are, and we need to understand whose we are. If we, like the disciples, have put our faith in Christ and are seeking to follow him, then what Jesus says here is that we belong to God. Now, that comes with tremendous blessing, but that also comes with tremendous responsibility. You are God's this morning if you're in Christ. You are in the palm of his hand. But being God's does not just change our identity, but it should also change our devotion. Because being God's overrides any other allegiance we may have in this life. Because it is God who created us, it is God who has saved us, and it is, him, it is to him we are going. And so our identity rests in him and him alone. Our whole life is to be governed by the God who gave his life for us on the cross. Anything less, and I read this this, uh, this week, and I found it, when I first heard it, I thought, wow, this is, this is strong. But I think it is true. Our life is to be governed by the God who gave his life for us on the cross. And anything less will be taking Jesus' blood and throwing it in his face. When I first heard that, I thought, whoa. But it's true, isn't it, really? Jesus gave his all. Are we giving our all? Because effectively, if we're not, we are the equivalent of throwing his blood back in his face. The whole of ourselves is called by God. Look at these verses from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and improve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are living sacrifices with a new identity, rooted in God. And so Jesus, as he prepares to return to heaven, he's preparing these guys to head out into his world and effectively be his ambassadors, be his representatives. What a responsibility. They aren't set and equipped, but it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? And so before they're sent, he wants them and he wants us to remember whose we are, the utter security that is theirs and that is ours if we're in Christ. The promise that God has spoken over them and over us if we're in Jesus this morning. And we can rest secure in that promise. If you're in Christ, you're in God's hand. No matter what you're facing, no matter how bleak a situation may seem, that is the truth that cannot change. Before we do anything, we need to know who we are. Identity is what every person is longing for. Your identity is in Christ and it is anchored in heaven, says the New Testament. Know the truth, says Jesus, and the truth will set you free. If you've put your faith in Christ and you're seeking to follow him, you are his. Yet what Satan would have us do is doubt that, to forget that. If we forget what our place and position is before God, then it will weaken us, then it will destabilize us, then it will stunt our growth. Know what you are, says Jesus. Believe the truth and the truth will set you free. I printed out some statements on, the, on some of your seats. If you haven't got one, I can grab one for you at the end. The title says, In Christ. If you look at the statements, if you look at the verses, they speak of who we are in Christ. 
This is what God says you are. I want you to look at them. And are there ones in there that you're struggling to believe? Are there ones in there that you would struggle to say out loud about yourself? Really? Maybe, maybe circle them or highlight them, the ones that really you're struggling with, and speak them over yourself this week. Because regardless of how you feel, that is the truth. And that is what God says you are. Root yourself in the truth, says Jesus. Root yourself in who God says you are. Remember your identity and live by it. Because Satan will not want you to remember who you are. Remember who you are, says Jesus. Who am I in Christ? And are we living in the light and in the power of what those truths are? Secondly, we are given a new unity. John 17, 11 says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Jesus, in his prayer, asked for his followers to be protected by God, by the power of God's name, that's his character, that he protect them and us from Satan, the evil one, so that we may be one as the Father and the Son are one. It's a small phrase, but there's so much in there. And we will touch on it next week. It's not a cop-out, but we're going to touch on it next week as well, because I'm speaking next week. Jesus brings it up again. But what Jesus says here is this, that Satan's chief tactic is to create disunity in churches. It's his chief tactic. That's within local churches, that's within regional churches, that's within national and international churches. No matter if disunity is brought through small things or big things, that is his tactic. Because even if small things can cause a stirring, can cause a fuss, can cause bitterness and jealousy and unforgiveness and impatience and grudges and anger and hatred. If Satan can just leave a mark, which can become a wound, which can lead to infection, which can lead to damage and destruction of the whole body. More than anything else, Satan wants Christians to not like each other. He doesn't want them to like each other. doesn't want them to spend time together in the same room. He wants to create subcultures that are ones of bitterness and tension, where grudges can be held over the smallest of things, where brothers and sisters will refuse to speak to each other or talk about disagreements or supposed disagreements rationally, gently, and in a loving Christ-like way. Ephesians 4 it should be up on the screen for us. Ephesians 4 speaks on this, where it says that we as Christians, if we are not careful, we can give the devil a foothold. And in the Greek, that means you can give the devil a place. What I like to see it as is that you're giving the devil a place at your table. And all he needs is a foothold. All he needs is a little sliver 
that he can create just some sort of threat. And Jesus knows this. And this, I've been thinking about this all week, you know. Jesus knew this. He experienced this. We see a glimpse of it in the wilderness, don't we? How Jesus is tempted by Satan. Jesus knows the threat, which is why he prays about it. So if you or I are here today where we are holding something against someone in this room, or maybe they're not in this room, who is a brother and sister in Christ, and we're letting it fester, and we're letting it eat us up, you need to put that right today. You need to put that right today. Why? Because this verse says that you're giving Satan a place at your table. You're giving him an opportunity for evil and sin to occur. And if Jesus is praying about this, then how much should we be taking this seriously? When was the last time you and I prayed for protection from the evil one? And we pray about lots of things, don't we? Health and family and decisions. All good things to pray for. Jesus prayed firstly for this. Jesus didn't want us to be naive. We have an enemy. And we are so often praying about lots of, yes, good things. But how much do we pray about this? Protection from Satan and his forces and for equipping in the battle for our minds and our hands day by day. How much are we praying about this? Well, another thing on verse 11 is simply this, which takes what we've just talked about to a higher level because we'll touch on, and we're going to touch on it again next week as a bit of a cop-out, but we're going to touch on it again next week, I promise. How we interact as a church family is designed to reflect the intimacy of the Godhead. It's designed to reflect the intimacy of the Trinity to the world. Now, if I don't think that's a, if you don't think that's a challenge, I don't know what is. How we relate to each other, how we serve each other, how we love each other is to display the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's the, that's the challenge. That's the standard. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Unity for Jesus is so, so important. Now, something does need to be said here on unity, and particularly in our culture today. Unity should never be found at the expense of truth and holiness. Never. In our culture today, as Christians in the West, we need to remember that first. Unity should never be found at the expense of truth, and it should never be found at the expense of holiness. We must remember that in a day where, sadly, we are seeing more and more Christians side away from biblical teaching and biblical doctrine, we must remember this. It should never come at the expense of truth and of holiness. But if we are aligned on truth and we are seeking to live holy lives, then our relationships with each other are to reflect in some way the community between the Father and the Son. In fact, Jesus says in John 13 that this is what the world should see about us. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's by our love for each other that the world will understand something of God. 
Now, that type of love and that type of community and that type of servant-heartedness, that can only come from God. So what I'm asking for us all to do is to pray and ask God to give us that heart and give us that commitment for each other in the church because that's what Jesus asked us to do. And this isn't just for the spiritual elite here, for those who are more gifted, who've got more time to give. This is for all of us. We're all part of God's community. This is the standard. Are we asking Jesus to give us that heart, to give us that love, loving and servant-heartedness? Are we available for each other? Are we a family? Thirdly, Jesus gives us new priority. Let me read again verse 13 to 19. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. We've already mentioned in following Jesus, our identity has changed. We are, as Jesus says and is, not of the world. As the famous phrase goes, as Christians, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. In fact, Jesus says here that because we've accepted his words and we seek to love and follow him, the world, like Satan, is our enemy. Jesus says there, the world hates us. Why? Because it can or it should see that we're different. We do not live to its standards, but we live to God's standards. We live by the authority of Scripture and what it's revealed to us about God and how we're created to live and to flourish. Our priorities now, because we're in Christ, they're different to the world, or they should be. Would we say that our life is different to those who we study alongside in school, or we live alongside in the street, or who we work alongside? Are our priorities different to them? Do our lives look that different, really? We are not living for the world now, but we're living for Jesus and working to his agenda and not our own. And that's very hard when we're still in the world, surrounded by its voices and surrounded by its influences day after day after day, which is why Jesus says these incredibly important words in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, note in the Greek, it is not that Jesus' words or God's words or Scripture, it's not that it's true, which is an adjective, but that it is truth. It's a noun. Not just true, but truth. God's words are truth. We are surrounded by a Western culture at the moment which doesn't know what truth even is or how to define it. Culture in the West in particular, I would say, is a lot like what Pilate says in John chapter 18 when he's talking to Jesus. And what is the question that he says? What is truth? Ironic, given that the man standing in front of him says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does Jesus mean when he says sanctify them, sanctify us by the truth. Well, to sanctify something means to set it apart for special use. And in the Bible, to sanctify a person is to make them holy. So sanctification, it's a state of separation unto God. You're now placed into his service. You're submitting to him. His priorities are now yours. 
And it's one of those now and not yet things in Scripture, you know, namely that when we give our lives to Jesus, we are declared positionally before God is sanctified. We are holy, we are a saint. That's one of the promises on the sheet that I gave out. That connects with our new identity. You are now a saint positionally. But sanctification, it's also a process. And as we grow and mature in our faith and in our following of Christ, we become more like him, which is another way of saying we are being sanctified. Accommodator read and put it like this. Sanctification involves a relational component, separation from participating and being influenced by evil, and a moral component, growth in holiness or moral purity in our attitudes and our thoughts and our actions. Sanctification is an ongoing process. And as Jesus prays here, it happens in the context of truth. Namely, that as Christians believe and think and live according to the truth in relation to God, themselves, and the world, they are being sanctified. So as Christians, we are called to be in the world, living for Jesus, sharing the gospel, following his example, growing in holiness. And we do this through living by God's words, the truth. Now, if we're called to live and hold on to what God says, which is true, what does Jesus call Satan in John chapter 8? Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Therefore, if we want to be protected from him, if we, want to, if we, need, we need the truth, we must take hold of God's words and treasure them his promises and his teachings, because they are the things that will keep us secure and keep us safe. Our enemy will not want us to pick this book up. He will make it the hardest thing to pick up every day. Our enemy will not want us to remember our identity. He will not want us to treasure and work for Trinitarian-like unity in our Christian family. He won't. He will not want us to remember our priorities regarding the gospel mission. He will desire for us to fit into the world, to work to its agenda, to pour our time and our energy and our money into non-spiritual things. He will not want us to hold on to the truth. He will, not, he will want us to abandon orthodox Christian teaching. He will not want us to be sanctified and live gospel-shaped lives. And if he can't turn you away from Jesus completely, he will make you as ineffective as he can as a follower of Christ. If he can't turn you away, he will make you as ineffective as he can. He will distract you, he will lie to you, he will tempt you. And Jesus knows this, which is why he prays. And I say, therefore, again, how often are we praying for the protection against Satan and his forces? Or asking God to reveal to us the things that we're believing of Satan. That he's lied to us about, about our identity, or about our mission, about our work. You know, Satan is he's a bit like, his tactics haven't changed. If you remember what he says to Adam and Eve, or to Eve, while Adam was there in Genesis 3, what does he say? He says, did God really say that? If you get to the foot of every heresy, get to the foot of every lie, basically the same tactic, isn't it? Did God really say that you're a holy saint? Did God really say that he loves you completely? Did God really say that in his words? Are there areas in your life where you aren't believing the truth about God? Or you're not believing the identity that you have in him? Or you're, you're not thinking the truth, you're not living the truth? And are we giving time to washing ourselves through Scripture, through God's word? Are there areas in our lives where we've put the world's priorities above God's? Now we're asking for God's help to spot the devil's schemes. 
because he is subtle. It will not be obvious. He is called the deceiver. By definition, then, he can deceive us. So we need to be ready and equipped for his attacks. Perhaps these words from Ephesians are going to help us understand the battle. But also the equipping that is available to us. And note this. When I read these words, remember, we have to put the armor on. It's not just about knowing that it's there. You have to and I have to daily put it on. Get up and put it on. What does Paul say in Ephesians? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, Stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, says Paul, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Are we putting on the armor? Are we aware of the devil's schemes? Are we naive to them? May God help us to see them. Finally, Jesus gives us his joy. Verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Probably thinking, Joel, it's not been a very joyful message, if I'm honest. Sorry about that. Well, actually, I shouldn't apologize because Jesus didn't apologize for that. And he didn't want these 11 men in front of him to be naive, and he doesn't want us to be naive either. Because following the man who is the way, the truth, and the life will not promise easy times, it will not promise smooth experiences, and it will not promise the world's esteem. And you might feel this morning, and thinking, well, Joel, I feel as far away from having Jesus' joy as is humanly possible in my life at the moment. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm facing or what I'm battling. You don't see it. And you're right, I don't. How could I? But Jesus does. And what's more, Jesus was facing, Jesus said these words, whilst facing the torment of the cross and all the burdens of sin and shame that were to come, all of the suffering was to come, and he said, I want these guys to have my joy in them. Jesus has joy despite the betrayal, despite those who would leave him, despite the suffering he was going to endure, he had a joy, and he prayed that his followers would know it to the full. What was Jesus' joy? Well, in two occasions in our passage, Jesus speaks of his going back to the Father, doesn't he? His mind wasn't on the cross. 
His mind wasn't even on the tomb. His mind was on heaven. I'm coming to you, Father. His mind was on heaven, to be with the Father, to be with Him, enjoying His presence. And do you know what Jesus' greatest desire is for you? So strongly that He, that he prays for it. Again, I'm going to borrow I'm going to borrow from next week's passage. Look at what Jesus says in John 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. That's the culmination of this prayer. Why God has opened your eyes to his name. Why he's given you his words. Why he's guarded you through your walk with him. Why he prays that you'll be kept from the evil one. That you'll be fully sanctified. That we'll complete the mission and live in this world for him and for his gospel. More than anything else, he wants you to be with him. Forever to see and savor the glory that the Father has given him and to share in it. That is his chiefest desire. For he knows that on that day it will bring the most profound joy and pleasure that you will or could ever experience. Far above anything this world can offer. Far above it. So Christian today, look ahead. Look at the finishing line. Look at what's promised you when you enter Jesus' presence. You know, uh, one of my sort of modern-day heroes, spiritual heroes, passed away um, a couple of weeks ago, Timothy Keller. And uh, one of the, I think the la- one of the last things, or one of the, yeah, certainly one of the last things he said, he said, I'm thankful that people are praying for me, for my healing. But I'd ask that they stop because I want to see Jesus. Is that my heart? Is that our heart this morning? Are we looking ahead? Are we looking to what's promised? Because that's what Jesus was doing. Don't worry about the now. When I say let go of your pain and your burden, I don't, I don't mean belittle it. I mean give it to Jesus and rest it with him and rest on his strength. Focus on what's ahead. I'm going to finish by just reading a hymn that came to my mind as I was preparing this week, and it's quite old language. So I put it up on the screen so it might be more helpful to follow. Okay. But look at these words. And Christian, this is your hope. This is your joy. Keep your eyes on this. Midst the darkness, storm, and sorrow, one bright gleam I see. Well, I know the blessed morrow, Christ will come for me. Midst the light and peace and glory of the Father's home, Christ for me is waiting, watching, waiting, till I come. Long the blessed guide has led me by the desert road. Now I see the golden tower, city of my God. There amidst the love and glory, he is waiting yet. On his hand a name is graven, he can ne'er forget. There amidst the songs of heaven, sweeter to his ear, is the footfall through the desert ever drawing near. There made ready other mansions, glorious, bright, and fair, but the bride the Father gave him still is wanting there. 
Who is this who comes to meet me on the desert way as the morning star foretelling God's unclouded day? He it is who came to win me on the cross of shame. In his glory, well, I know him evermore the same. Oh, the blessed joy of meeting all the desert past. Oh, the wondrous words of greeting he shall speak at last. He and I together entering those bright courts above. He and I together sharing all the Father's love. Where no shade nor stain can enter, nor the gold be dim, in that holiness unsullied I shall walk with him. Meet companion then for Jesus, from him for him made, glory of God's grace forever there in me displayed. He who in the hour of sorrow bore the curse alone, I who through the lonely desert trod where he had gone, he and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share, mine to be forever with him. His, that I am there. I'm going to invite the band up to lead us.